0: Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. And with that said, today we are continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, this collection of sayings that are attributed to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And like any good sermon, Jesus offered a mix of words and images in an attempt to engage the lives of the people who happened to be listening to him on that mountainside that day. Last week, I love how Bobby led us toward a clear and yet poetic vision of what Jesus meant as he told the curious crowds, do not worry, which is such an audacious thing to say, but oh how it carries wisdom for us thousands of years later into our time and into our world where we have such incredible resources, we live longer, we travel more, we eat better, we know so much, and yet physicians and specialists will tell us that nearly 20% of the people in this nation, and maybe even 20% of the people in this room, that we wrestle with a form of anxiety, and that less than half of us will seek treatment for that. Which just goes to show you how profound it was that Jesus instructs us not to worry and then points to the birds and the fields. And challenges us to see beauty as an antidote for our anxious hearts. Pure, unearned, unsought beauty. And we are so privileged in this city, we might not feel like that today, but we are so privileged in this city, in this province, in this country where natural beauty is so prevalent and accessible. There's mountains, there's trails, there's paths and brilliant foothills, sunsets, but also, I mean, Jesus says to consider the birds and there's literally a bird sanctuary right over there in the middle of our city. In fact, many of you drove past it on your way to church. Some of you walked across it on your way to church. Beauty is literally right around the corner. But then, of course, Bobby observed how Jesus offers some hints for our nail-biting and our control-addict tendencies, but how there's no instruction to not worry about each other, which is this beautiful flipping of these instructions that pairs so well with our experience in the world and with what Jesus teaches over and over again in the Gospels, how just maybe, The burdens we carry, quite paradoxically, have a way of lightening as we care for others. And as we (laughs) lay aside our self-centeredness and we take stock of the stresses of those around us, the things that they are facing, and how our anxiety and our worry about our financial situation might actually be lessened more by choosing to share what we have with somebody that we know (laughs) could use our help and how our daily prayers for peace to come and rule in our lives, how these prayers are embodied and they are real when we offer conversation and quiet and companionship to somebody that we know is anxious about their situation. And yes, of course, there are clinical and professional helps for the worry and anxiety that you might be facing. And we as a community, we wanna be a resource for you, connecting you to the helps that you might need, so please reach out to us at any time. But wherever you are, wherever we find ourselves, and whatever we are facing, Jesus' calm assurance that beauty observed and efforts made to lighten someone else's worry These words are so welcome, and I hope that if you missed that teaching last week that you will check it out and tag along on our YouTube account or in our podcast feed in the coming days. This afternoon might not be a bad time because you're gonna be stuck inside anyways. Now, today we're going to take another step forward. But first, will you pray with me for a moment? God, you are God of ancient story and of ancient text, of ancient instruction and yet, truth that comes to us now, you're the God of our stories that we bring with us to this moment, and we, yeah, we're aware of the fractures and the pain that are all around us today. We are present to the fact that there are those in this city who have no shelter on such a cold morning, and there is injustice, and there are many self-serving systems of power in this world. Today, some of us, our bodies are weak, they're failing us. And for many of us, we find again this morning that our intentions to be better have failed us. And so we come to community today with these attachments and these distractions. And this is why we pray for calm. We come to the scriptures now from so many places and some of us are asking questions, some of us need an encounter Some of us have thankful hearts this morning. The snow is brightening our day. And we ask that in all of these things that you would guide us as we choose to be open and that you would shape us as we choose to be available to your work in us. Loving God, be near to our need today, to our unseen struggle, to our longings for wholeness and for renewal, we pray in the name of Christ, our hope, now and always, amen. All right, so today we are going to pick up with Jesus coming to what scholars feel is the heart of this sermon, his central thought or thesis or argument. And in this section, Jesus offers a bit of a masterclass, which I have to ask, have any of you ever heard of this site? Does anybody use it? Okay, we got Bruce Awesome. This is a site where for $250 a year, you can have brilliant thinkers and artists and innovators teach you the tricks of their trade in a series of video lessons, which is kind of a cool idea, right? And here are some examples. You might have Dan Brown teaching you how to write bad historical fiction, or you, or, or you might have Malcolm Gladwell teaching you how to grow your hair out. There's lots of videos with Gordon Ramsay teaching you how to cook at home, which is something he never does, I'm sure. But then what's with this Perlman guy who's going to teach me how to play the violin? Come on. And is Rhymes seriously going to teach me how to write tear-jerking and emotionally manipulative Grey's Anatomy-like drama? I don't think that's possible. I'm a little skeptical. And I mean, I, I am a bit of a sucker for hearing talented people share their secrets. But I know the limits of my cooking skills and I know that I have limits to my ability to pick up an instrument in 25 minutes. And I suspect there's some good stuff in there so I'm gonna wait for some of you to watch more of these videos and report back on how seriously we should take it. My point is this, that we might look at Jesus here in Matthew five and say that he's offering a master class on a well-lived, devout religious life. And I'm gonna read you a section, and then we're gonna work through a couple of ideas, okay? So the text reads this, that Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And let's just stop right there for a second, because this saying seems to be pointing to the fact that Jesus was being accused of dismissing the sacred texts of the Jewish people and being unfaithful to the tradition. Which I think is important to know because even Jesus seems to have gotten bad press or he may have been misrepresented or misquoted by somebody here. Maybe his teaching was spun by somebody who was a disgruntled disciple. Just showing that you don't actually have to be in an election cycle to see the worst in people which is where you and I live. The point is that Jesus is saying, don't believe what you've heard. I have come to fulfill the story, not abolish it. And then he goes on. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, first thing to remember is that as Jesus starts talking and this sermon he's giving, Jesus is explaining what he has already been doing right beforehand. Jesus has been helping the sick in various villages. He's been going on a bit of a speaking tour. But what you have to imagine is that Jesus has just been living his life. And there are some ways, presumably, that Jesus went about walking and talking and touching people and associating with others, and these things seem to demand an explanation, hence the sermon. And here, where Jesus refers to the law and the Torah, this is a reference to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, where we find the story of creation and human mistakes. The story of the exodus and the genesis of God's commitment to the Hebrew people, along with the rules that they were to live by as a nation and a community. And then Jesus refers to the prophets. And these were the stories of God's people on conquest, but then how ultimately they were displaced by their enemies. Along with the writings of people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, some of you might know those names. These people who emerged in history to call God's people back toward their true purpose. And in referring to these, Jesus is saying, look, what I'm doing right now in your towns and villages, it's not intended to discount or to get rid of this story or these texts, I'm fulfilling them. And we're gonna come back to that last bit in a second because we need to understand part of what's going on here that Jesus is in a conversation, see, In Jewish history, there were these ancient stories that were foundational to the people, the written law and the text. But several hundred years before Jesus, as the Jews were conquered and spread out across various nations, what began to develop was this oral tradition based on Jewish rabbis interpreting and grappling with how to live the written law because you can imagine there are more than 600 rules and regulations in the ancient texts, and there were obviously some things that they didn't actually speak to. And you have to think of Jews living in the great cities of ancient Babylon and how they had to figure out what to do with the instructions of killing and sacrificing animals when they weren't shepherds and nomads anymore. And what we see is that by the time of Jesus, we know that different teachers of this oral tradition had emerged, and including these two guys, Shammai and Hillel. Both of these guys founded a school of thought and may have been contemporaries of Jesus. And here's what you need to remember so that you can fill your friends in as you're talking about first century Jewish law tomorrow morning. Shammai was a traditionalist when it came to how the Torah should be lived. So on something like divorce, which Mosaic law permitted men to do to their wives while stipulating that they shouldn't, Shammai taught that divorce should only happen in extreme cases. And then Hillel, on the other hand, he was a bit more progressive, if you want to call it that, and he taught that a man could divorce a woman for botching a meal, which is awful, for the record. Another example is how Shammai taught that if you forgot to offer a blessing after a meal, which is common Jewish practice, that you had to go back to the very place where you ate that meal to offer it again, which is very traditionalist, okay? Whereas Hillel taught that you could just pray wherever you were when you remembered that you'd forgotten to offer that blessing. In this way, Hillel's a little bit more progressive or lenient in his application of the law. I hope you can see that. And the point is that when Jesus arrives and starts telling people how they should live, he wasn't the only one saying things like this. He was participating in this robust conversation within his own tradition where, not unlike you and me, he was caught between all kinds of categories, traditional and progressive ones. And it's important to see that his truth emerged from those places. And in this way, we need to recognize that as Amy Jill Levine, a biblical scholar says, she says that Jesus doesn't have to be unique in all cases to be profound for us. And I don't want to move on into this text without encouraging you to consider the ways the truth comes to you through the dialogues you're in. And listen, here at Commons, we try to help out with this. First of all, we try to expose you to different perspectives and personalities, both in our teaching, but then also in our pop-up theology talks, or film screenings that we host, or special events. But then there's also our bookshelf that's sitting right back there at our Connection Center, where if you don't know, there's a curated collection of books that you can peruse and you can sign up for free. And these are resources that we hope will just get you thinking about the world and how your faith can engage it. But there's one more that I wanna mention because Bobby did last week as well, and that's this upcoming contemplative prayer event that we're hosting, which is going to be an introduction to some of the mystics in our Christian tradition. I don't know if you know this, but C.S. Lewis taught that for every four, or new, yeah, for every four new or current books you read, you should read an old one, which I mention because I firmly believe that the conversations that we are in aren't just those in our current culture but there are also those in our broader tradition with all of its historical personalities. And this prayer event that we're gonna be hosting may be helpful for you if for no other reason than it will expose you to, among others, Teresa of Avila, who I have read a little bit of. I've conversed with her, this 16th century nun who established convents all across Spain and she wrote prolifically, she was an incredible leader. And you know what, Teresa is one of these conversation partners who shapes truth in me, not because she's right about everything, no, I disagree with her all the time as I read, but because I need her deep, resonant faithfulness. And I want to emulate the sincerity of her spiritual life. And she has this keen insight with the scripture that reminds me that I, and that we here in the 21st century, that we do not know everything. She constantly opens my eyes to the text. And to the fact that I can learn from just about everyone because truth so often comes to us in conversation just like it did for Jesus. Now, Jesus is saying some really big things here. And his masterclass on meaningful life takes a big leap. When Jesus claims that he's come to fulfill the grandness of the law and the prophets, he's being a traditionalist, he's being orthodox. Along with Sadducees and Pharisees, all these other groups who were in Israel at the time, all these people who had this really high view of how God was revealed in the Jewish story specifically and the Jewish texts specifically. In fact, when Jesus says that not even the smallest mark on the page would fade or be lost before all the scriptures came to be realized, he's actually being really conservative there. This is this conservative view of the text. And you might imagine somebody sitting there going, really, Jesus? To follow you into a resonant life, we have to take note of all the dots and all the hooks of Hebrew calligraphy, and we have to follow the most minute commandment that's there. But then Jesus makes this progressive leap more in line with people like Hillel who all these people were trying to do was trying to guide people into how they could apply the rules in the book. It wasn't just about knowing them and checking off a box. Jesus knew that people needed to take these ancient words and somehow extend them into situations that the text didn't talk about. And to do this, Jesus tells the crowd Look, unless your religious life somehow exceeds the scribes, the experts of the text who knew every little mark on the page, and unless your religious life exceeds that of the Pharisees who were this reforming group in Judaism, these were the super religious people committed to radical adherence, unless you're better than them, you will not find God's best for you. And you can almost imagine the person just sitting there in the audience saying, well, which is it, Jesus? I thought you said you came to fulfill this story, make it better, but it kind of sounds like you're raising the bar even higher. Now, for the record, the Greek word for fulfill here, plerosai, this is a term that Matthew uses all the time to showcase how Jesus' life and message aligned with the ancient Jewish story. And we see this, for example, in in Jesus' birth narrative, how we're told that angels and shepherds and magi happened so that the prophet's words in ancient times would be fulfilled because God had come to be with us. Which is why it's not all that surprising to hear Jesus use this verb, fulfill, saying to God's people living under Roman occupation, to people who are trying to find a way to adhere to the law as a way to preserve their community and their tradition, Jesus says to them, listen, the law isn't God's last word to you. So I drop that. It's not God's last word. And as Scott McKnight points out much of the rest of the Christian scriptures, We can see this in the book of Hebrews, we see it in the writings of Paul that we look at in our Romans series. You can look at the stories of Peter in the book of Acts. What these texts show us, they show us that, or they show us what a fulfilled story looked like for the earliest followers of Jesus. And how to live in that story required some radical revisioning without abolishing. And this idea of fulfillment, I think that this is Jesus' masterclass at its most provocative. And we should take a second just to grapple with it because when we want things to change, we do something drastic, right? We often do. And yeah, I could be referring to how we trash the IKEA furniture that we built painstakingly when it's time to replace it, right? It's oddly satisfying to destroy that thing. <laughs> But what about more broadly? How if something's wrong with the organization we're part of, or in the system that we have to run, or the administration that we're involved in, we have a tendency to wanna burn things to the ground to start fresh. Or how if a relationship sours for us, we'll just walk away and ghost. And I think this is so true of the way that we approach our faith sometimes, and our religious practice. And by this, I'm referring to how sometimes, many of us come to a place where things aren't neat and tidy anymore. Maybe through some experience, some illness, or some emotional suffering, or some financial loss. And sometimes it's just through a process of learning and discovery and searching, which is what it was for me in my late 20s. Our notion of faith, it starts to fall apart or be deconstructed. And what happens, we often start demolishing, quite rightly on many counts, and we strip our souls to the ground. And maybe you're sitting here today, and like me, that pulling away and that coming apart has been really important for you. Where you've come to see parts of your faith, how they were rooted in obligation and in performance and in belief that wasn't rooted in Jesus, and it certainly wasn't tied to who you really are. Or maybe you're here today and you're actually right in the middle of those deconstructive questions where you're not sure what to think anymore. Or maybe you're going through some challenge that has you questioning whether or not just to just dust your hands and walk away from this tradition. And I, I hope and pray, quite regularly, that commons can be the kind of community where those parts of our journeys are welcomed and held with grace. I really do believe that we can be a community where, as poet Christian Wyman says, some of us can be called to unbelief so that new forms of faith can emerge. Those things might be true of us, but this sermon from Jesus also challenges us. Because Jesus had this mission, and there were certainly some ways that he wanted to steer his followers into a new direction. He wanted them to be more just and to be more compassionate. And we cannot get around the fact that Jesus centers this sermon and his ministry on constructing a better world. Which challenges us to admit that a faith defined by deconstructing everything will leave us empty handed and with a shallow heart. We just end up critical about everything that's different and everyone who's different, those who are too progressive, those who are too conservative around us, and I think Jesus offers us an alternative. Inviting us into a journey where we don't have to abolish all the laws and the stories that don't define us anymore. And instead we can work to fulfill God's great goodness, constructing the world as Jesus thought it could be. So then, Jesus says these things and then for the rest of the chapter starts laying out examples how his teaching is different to varying degrees from the other rabbis of the time, how his followers could move past merely following the letter of the law and how they could construct a meaningful, divine, riddled life. And scholars note how Jesus does this with what they call antitheses, which just refers to how Jesus works each example by saying, you have heard it said that, which in doing so he's pointing to the law and to Torah and to the Jewish tradition, but then how he provides an alternative thesis. He says, you have heard it said that, but I tell you. And it would be really easy to read Jesus here and hear those statements as critical and deconstructive, but remember, we were just talking about how Jesus is more concerned with building a new world rather than burning the old one down. And he wants us to be that way too. But with that said, there are some really tricky pieces in this passage. Jesus names our propensity for anger and betrayal and divorce and dishonesty and violence and hatred for those who do us wrong. And he says, you have heard sermons on what the rules are. But I almost imagine him saying, but isn't it a little bit bigger than that? People say don't murder, but isn't dealing with your anger a surer way to peace? People say don't commit adultery, but wouldn't the world be better if you didn't look at other people like objects? People say don't break your oaths, but aren't you the measure of your actions, not your words? People tell you all the time, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but you and I both know that revenge has a cruel reward. And people will tell you, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but isn't there a better way? Because we will all end up the enemy in that kind of story, where the only thing that can save us is love. And I don't know if you can see it there, how Jesus seems to be saying, go ahead, know the law. Own the stories from the past, own your story. Know the rules, know the story of God in ancient times, but don't stop there. There's a fuller life if you'll move just a little bit further because see, as we noted this earlier, for Jesus, the law wasn't God's last word to God's people. It was a story, a beautiful story meant to captivate us and gather us and point us in the right direction. It was never meant to be a logbook of rules so that we would know what to do in every situation. No, no, for Jesus, it was a tale intended to help us to trust Him, following Him into all of our uncertain everyday futures. And in those futures, the world has this profound capacity to be more just and to be more equal and to be more alive as we commit ourselves to vibrant spiritual lives, meaningful lives, what I think the scriptures call eternal life. And as you live that way this week, as you take the lessons of this master class with you, I hope that you will pursue truth in the conversations that are going on all around you, the old voices, the new voices, the voices of those in this community that assist you in the right kind of living. And I pray that you would begin to see that your faith is just one of the ways that God is using to make and construct new things out of old ones and how you can get to building, how maybe you don't have to do the demolition anymore. And I pray that you would live with courage, knowing that your life with God doesn't mean you have to have an answer or a rule for every situation you face, but that you can trust that Jesus leads you on a better way. Let's pray. God, We're present to your work in us now, in the workings of an ancient story, in the workings of an ancient text, one that comes alive as we look at it carefully and we listen for what might be coming to us across time and space. And the way that that truth and that clarity and that light, it passes through our life and it, It marks the things that distract us. It marks the things that we're carrying. And oh, what a gracious work it is that you do. So thank you for these moments now. We ask that you would help us as we work to form the truth that's all around us, but then also to attune ourselves to the scripture and to the tradition, all these helpful pilgrims that have been out ahead of us and can report back I'm thankful for a community that values those voices, and I pray that you'd help us to do that well in the future. And for those of us who may need to be captivated again with this idea that, you know what, a spiritual life, a meaningful life, it's something that I can build. I don't have to live my life tearing down what has hurt me or what might be hurting others. I pray that you captivate us with an imagination for what it means to live in the world as you imagine knowing that we follow you each and every day, the divine kindness that draws us out beyond our own lives, the limits of our energy, the limits of our weakness, to share your great goodness. We pray these things as we go with you in the name of Christ, amen.